This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Mississippi's rivers, ponds, and lakes are the home to many varieties of species. Fish, snakes, crawfish, and other creatures make up Mississippi's aquatic wildlife, including one very special rediscovered creature. So today on the show, aquatic conservation biologist Calvin Rezac joins us to discuss this animal and what else is going on in the waters of Mississippi. You can join our conversation this morning. Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Libby, what are you seeing around uh, your yard these days? Oh, gosh, the usual suspects, but, um, you know, usually I'm lazy and sit up on the screen porch and <laughs> get to watch whatever I can see. But uh, since we were gone in the summer and nobody was there to do bird baths, they pretty much everybody just kind of moved down it's maybe i don't know what 200 yards to the pond in front of our house so um have to go down there really to to see all my usual suspects are all <laughs> down there and uh oh, the highlight of this week though was um i went on the audubon bird trip the first saturday of each month the local audubon society usually leads of uh, a bird walk in LaFleur's Bluff State Park. So we start over on the park side and walk over to behind the museum and back and see lots of birds. So I joined that group uh, this this past Saturday morning, and I saw a lot of great things. It's a good time to get out there. need to go back because I did not see the Limpkins, and everybody has seen, which is – it used to be a rare bird for us. Maybe it's not going to be anymore. They're they're really extending their range. But anyway, that's a, for another show. But uh, so that was a fun walk. And then this coming Saturday, uh, you've got a chance to get out. Of course, you can go out on the Lafleur's Bluff trails anytime you want to. It's uh, especially if you get your membership, and then you've got a number, and you can just you know tap into the gate anytime you want to but this coming saturday at the natural science museum wesley shoop's going to be signing his books and it's a photography wonderful photography and it's pretty much like a year of what's going on in lafleur's bluff state park so it's a absolute beautiful book and uh, university press brought it out and he's going to be selling and signing books at the natural science museum next saturday at 10 o'clock and uh, he's going to uh, do a little presentation in the midst of it and then take everybody out on the trails so uh he's going to particularly i'm sure we'll get ID for lots of animals. He's a really, well, he's good at all of his flora and fauna, so it'll be a fun walk on the trails, and um, he'll be giving photography tips, too, so bring your camera if you've got a camera. And that's November 11th or the 18th? November 11th, Okay, so Saturday, November 11th. Saturday, yeah. And um, gosh, 
uh, we, we plan to be there. And uh, when we were out Saturday, we also did a lot of botanizing and uh, insect looking and uh, particularly spiders. We're all interested in spiders, so most of us like to see what we can find out there. And, and did you say limpkins? Limpkins. I don't, I don't think we've ever mentioned them on the show before. Is It's a bird? It's a bird, and it's a, a, a shorebird. And... The cool thing, it's called a limpkin because it sometimes sort of displays a funny little limp when it walks. <laughs> so it's the little limpkin, which is a, an old, old name. I didn't realize that was the name. I didn't know what the name was. And then um, Wesley had read about it. And so I thought, oh, that just endears it even more. <laughs> so I've got to find the limpkins. What I think people have said they've seen as many as four in yeah, the park. Yeah, and they've been seeing them um, consuming freshwater mull- uh, mussels back there, too. Yeah, that's a neat thing. It seems like they eat snails and mussels. And um, we've got, luckily, we've still got plenty for them to eat. If I were a bird that walked with a limp, I'm not sure I would want to be known as that for the rest of my time on Earth. <laughs> it's like the lesser whatevers. It's like another thing. It's like you're not a really a good bird. You're a yeah, lesser you're something. The, le- yeah, the, the lesser goldfinch. They're actually a pretty cool bird, but yeah. Yeah, poor old Limpkin. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Major joins us from his clinic, as he does each Thursday. Good morning, Dr. Major. We're moving on from Halloween. Thanksgiving is coming up. So in general, remind us of your thoughts on feeding table scraps to pets. And then specifically, is there anything that you would avoid on the Thanksgiving table for pets? Well, i tell you what. Uh, in general, it's best to not give table scraps to our pets. Uh, they get addicted to it, and they want uh, whatever we eat. Uh, there's uh, cause for GI upsets if you want uh, maybe some vomiting and diarrhea, depending on what you feed. Uh, and if they're not used to it, it does make a big difference. Uh, as far as things not to not to feed, uh, I'll mention uh, you know Thanksgiving. A lot of people have different specialties for Thanksgiving, and I can't think of all of them right now, but. Anything that would have fruit in it with grapes, obviously you would not give that because grapes can be very toxic uh, to, to dogs. Uh, anything that's high fat uh, should be avoided. And uh, it seems like ham is incriminated uh, quite often as far as being a cause of GI upsets. So, and you know, in the most severe cases can cause pancreatitis which can be very uh, severe and can be life-threatening. So I would recommend not feeding table food uh, to your pets. And then I know that uh, chicken bones can splinter, so it's never advisable to give them. So would that be the same with a turkey bone? Well, you know, people say, oh, I've been giving my dog uh, bones forever and it's never had a problem. But then there's the one time that it splinters, as you say, can actually penetrate the intestine or stomach. And can I can remember very well a large dog that uh, had been fed uh, chicken bones, and uh, he bled out right in the exam room. Mm-hmm. This is years ago, uh, simply because it actually punctured the intestine and actually hit a vessel. So, yes, uh, be careful with bones. I I would rather say no uh, in general. 
But I guess if you cats, wanted cats, cats are a different story. They're picky anyway, and most of the time they <laughs> they don't they just want to look at it and maybe smell it, but they don't they aren't the worst. I don't think as far as uh, eating table food. So I guess if you wanted to, you could uh, buy one of those uh, toys that have the dogs have to dig out the treat from, and maybe that would be something special for the Thanksgiving for your for your pup. Right, that's excellent, and there are some treats that are good. And in most cases, you have a dog that's and cats. Do cats come to the table and beg? Maybe, but not not often. If you have a puppy or a dog that's at the table begging. I found that if you take uh, just some of the kibble that you have for the for the pet and give it a little bit at some point and make make reward it for good behavior, if it sits or stacks whatever and it's not jumping up and down. However, uh, I would think that that's probably not a good trait. Maybe wait until you're through eating and then reward it with some of the kibble or one of the pet treats. Um, also, during Thanksgiving, a lot of times people are visiting, so uh, folks might have uh, relatives that are relatively strange to pets in their house. So, again, let's look at this from both sides. First of all, if you have a dog that's maybe a little anxious, uh, you would want to do some things. But also, you want to prepare the people who are coming to visit you that, yes, we have pets. And, you know, so to cover both bases, I guess. Absolutely. And, of course, you know from being a cat owner that uh, – Sometimes cats are hard to find when you have guests. They have their hiding places, and quite often they, they, they don't come out. As far as dogs, it's very, they need to be socialized early on at an early age, in other words, from standpoint of puppies uh, especially, and dogs that you've adopted. Try to get them around as many people as you can. Uh, again, good manners is important. Uh, a lot of people uh, do not want the dog jumping up on them. Uh, trying to sit in their lap, this sort of thing. So good training goes a long way as far as having a, uh, what shall I say, a, a good uh, good time for your guests and, and yourself. Uh, some dogs do have to be um, put away. And by put away, I'm saying put in a kennel or in another room uh, when, when guests come, simply because they are too rambunctious or too uh, maybe even aggressive and protective of their home. So you've got to be aware of all of that. And uh, I would say that uh, in most cases uh, it's handled very well. I think most people are glad to meet your guests. You know, if somebody's coming to visit you and friends, family, whatever, they need to realize that you've got pets and it's part of your family. So uh, I think a discussion may be in order before someone comes, but just uh, be aware that not everybody uh, is pet friendly. I think my brother has a good idea. He has one little dog that's uh, she's very, you know, uh, always friendly and likes to visit with people. So for Thanksgiving, what will happen is kind of let him in. Shorty, I think is her name. And she runs around. Everybody says hello. You know, she gets pets, whatever, that sort of thing. And then they kind of put her back in. I think they have a crate for her. So it's kind of like she gets to see everybody, gets some of the excitement out, but then it's time to go. And that seems to be a, a good solution for that. Sounds great. Sounds like it might work. Not for everybody, but uh, certainly in a lot of cases that will be perfect. All right. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for this hour is Calvin Rezac from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. 
We're discussing aquatic wildlife in Mississippi today. So if you want to join the conversation, you can always send us an email as well by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So Calvin is an aquatic conservation biologist and curator of decapods at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So Calvin, right off the top, I've got to ask, what is a decapod? Well, it's uh, for... Mississippi residents, it's things like crayfish and shrimp, and we have some crabs down on the coast. So things like that with the uh, 10 appendages variety, yeah. Okay, that makes. I was trying to figure it out. I couldn't remember what deca is, but so it's 10, and then pods is the appendages. It, yeah, referring to the number of, of legs, yes. Okay. Um, tell us a bit about your background and what, uh, how you got interested in, in conservation. Yeah, so I'm, I'm originally from Minnesota, so I'll... Uh, apologize for my accent right now, um, but you know I grew up in a really uh, outdoor oriented family. Did a lot of fishing and camping and, and traveling with my grandparents in their RV. Um, did a lot of fishing up in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, which is on the border of Minnesota and Canada. And uh, did you know I remember just asking lots of questions to my, my grandpa and my uncles about these native species, about invasive species up in the Great Lakes, and it just kind of um, interested me at the at a young age and so i decided i was going to make that my career path went to south dakota state university uh, majored in wildlife fisheries sciences and got involved in research early um, took some internships and in, uh, summer technician positions in uh, wisconsin with uh, trout uh, down in texas with largemouth uh, bass out in south dakota with some native stream fishes and then um, a really amazing internship out in montana uh, working on the missouri river with pallid sturgeon and that ultimately just kept feeding into my interest and my passion that led me down to uh, uh, Arkansas. I mean, I really wanted to experience some of this amazing diversity you guys have down here. And uh, spent three years in, in grad school at the University of Central Arkansas with the, uh, uh, Reed and Jenny Adams studying uh, native fish species up in the Spring River, a beautiful Ozark um, spring-fed system. And, yes, yeah. And, um, and uh then that led me to Mississippi, so I moved here about three years ago. Um, so give us an idea of what a conservation biologist does. What's, what are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so if it's a broad term. I, I, we study a lot of variety of aquatic species at the Museum of Natural Science, um, whether it be fish or mussels or crayfish or even aquatic snails. Um, so we're during the field season, we're leading surveys for rare and threatened aquatic species, trying to gather information about the habitats they prefer, where they're found, where they're not found. And then we really uh, relay that information back to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service so they can make the determination on the status of a lot of these rare and threatened species. And then uh, outside of the field season, um, you know, I'm a curator for decapods and crayfish and aquatic snails. Um, so it's a lot of uh, curating specimens, identifying them down to the species level, cataloging them, you know, placing them in jars, putting them in the shelves where, f- where there will be there, um, you know, hopefully forever, and uh, doing a lot of technical report writing, publishing on our findings, um, doing presentations like this, getting the word out, um, and also just helping around the museum. It might be worth mentioning, we've got one of the largest crawfish collections in the country, right? Yeah, we have, uh, I think we're approaching 9,000 specimens, which is, that's a lot. I know it's the largest in Mississippi. Um, Fish, we're really approaching 100,000 jars, and that's the largest in Mississippi, one of the most well-maintained collections I've I've seen. Um, Yeah. 
This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and today we are visiting with Calvin Rizak from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Aquatic wildlife is our topic for today, so if you have a question for Calvin or a question for Dr. Major about your pet, or if you just want to tell us what you've been seeing when you've been out in nature in Mississippi, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. All right, so let's dig into things. Kind of tell us about uh, the recent discovery biologists found in Mississippi waters. Yeah, so... Um, I never thought I'd be a part of something like this. You hear stories about this, you know, rediscovering an extinct species, but you never thought you'd actually be involved in it. Um, so the big black rock snail, just to kind of describe it, you know, it's it looks like a prototypical snail. It's about an, an inch long. Most of our species are about that size in Mississippi. It's only found in the water, so it doesn't venture off into the terrestrial environment. It's kind of brown and yellow on the shell. And on the inside of the shell, it's got a really beautiful purple color to it. Um, and the species was originally described in 1965, and um, it's found in the Big Black River, uh, which is uh, west of west of here, about 45 minutes. And um, you know, through this, through since 1965, people just haven't been finding them. Um, I know there's been there's been recent there's were efforts to to try to locate them, but just there was people weren't having any luck at it, and. There was some worry that there was um, some stream head-cutting process that was degrading a lot of these river systems on the Mississippi side, Mississippi River side of the, the state. And uh, there was a, lot, a great concern that this species was extinct and lost. So it was, it was declared extinct in the 90s and the two, early 2000s. And it, this process really started about two years ago when uh, me and Robbie, um, Elway and her also works at the Museum of Natural Science, started doing freshwater mussel surveys in, in the black, big, big Black River. And um, that process entails, you know, going from the headwaters of the system down to the, the mouth of where it hits the, the Mississippi River, grubbing around with our hands trying to, try to find mussels. And our collections manager, Scott, told us that the Big Black rock snail might be there. And uh, during one of our ventures, we found a, a old, old shell, and it looked similar to the big black rock snail so we had some hope but we didn't know if it was just rolling around the river for the last 50 years so we brought it back and we decided you know let's go back um in 2022 and see if uh we can't locate it go back to that same site where we found that that old shell and uh within a within a matter of minutes we we walked down the stream the the stream bank and uh, there's a lot of hooting and hollering because they were all over the place in in the hundreds of them. Wow! And it's just an amazing, amazing thing to be a part of. That seems like a very labor intensive. As you say, you're down in the riverbed digging around with your hands, so it it must have been. If you would just share with us <clears throat> what it was like when when you saw all those, I mean that must have been an incredible experience. Well, yeah, it is a very labor intensive process. You know, we surveyed a whole river system from, you know, as as high up as we can go to the very bottom, and. Um, you know, this, this snail is only found, we did some follow-up surveys this year, and it is probably the smallest range snail outside of some spring-associated snails in in the U.S. It's only found within a five-kilometer range of, a, of the river, only at five uh, shoals. It's doing incredibly well at, at one specific site, and then it kind of, as you move downstream, it kind of tapers off to some, some lower numbers, but... Yeah, and finding these snails, they're small. So we'll get out there with, with sieves and kind of scooping up gravel, placing in these sieves, and kind of like if you're panning for gold, we'll shake it up and try to find these things. And it's, it is a very labor-intensive process. 
You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and today we're visiting with Calvin Rizak from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talking about aquatic wildlife, specifically the rediscovery of the big black rock snail. So you told us a little bit about their appearance. What else can you tell us about these snails? Well, they're they're really important to uh, our, our native river systems. Um, in Mississippi, we don't have a great understanding of aquatic snails in the state. Alabama has incredible diversity of aquatic snails um, in the hundreds. And on the Mississippi side of things, there just hasn't been a great push to understand and study these organisms. And it's probably part of the reason why it was um, overlooked for so long. Um, it's just there's not a lot of people doing the work, and it was just in such a small, uh, extreme range. Um, snails are, you know, maybe you've heard that freshwater mussels are like the the livers of the river, cleaning and filtering our, our river systems. But aquatic snails are like the vacuum cleaners of the river. You know, they're like the cows of the river. They're grazing on algae and biofilms that are attached to rocks and and uh, debris. Um, they, they So they help keep uh, algae levels down, and they also serve as... Um, prey for things like crayf- crayfish and fish. And as biologists, they're really great indicators of a healthy ecosystem. Oftentimes when we find these aquatic snails, um, we find uh, really important and rare mussel species. These snails actually have gills similar to fish, so they really need clean oxygen in a clean environment. And do they primarily move along the the riverbed? I mean, do they s- swim, quote unquote, at all? Yeah, well, they don't. Uh, they don't exactly swim. They have um, a foot that they use to to drag their bodies along the bottoms of the riverbed. They're not found particularly deep. They're found on the margins of the river. Um, found on, and these snails in particular are really um, found on large cobble, large gravel pieces, and that's. Primarily because that's what they're eating. They're eating algae found on that's attached to rocks, and and uh, being in Mississippi, we know that gravel is kind of hard to come by. A lot of these streams are s- sand bottom or silt bottom. Um, so, is a rediscovery of a formerly thought to be extinct species a rare occurrence? I would imagine it would happen, doesn't happen every day. Yeah, it doesn't happen. It's never happened to me before. <laughs> yeah. um, it, is, it is a really it is a rare occurrence, but it does happen more than you think. Um, the term it's kind of a nerdy term, but it, uh, it's called a Lazarus species. So that's a term we use for a species that we thought was extinct, but actually um, was rediscovered. So it kind of brought back from the dead. Um, just some examples. I don't know if you've heard of the coelacanth out in South uh, Africa, which is like an ancient fish species, was rediscovered. Um, the black-footed ferret is a really great example. It was actually rediscovered by a dog named Shep in <laughs> <laughs> um, Wyoming, which is an amazing story. Um, and there's a lot of other mollusk species that just get overlooked. You know, there's not a lot of people doing that kind of work looking for for freshwater mussels and particularly freshwater snails. So the, they get often overlooked during you know surveys. Yeah, I have to say, there was a lot of celebrating at our house. Oh, yeah. yeah. Paul was one of the people that had been looking yes. for 40 years. Yes. And, and he was, the, he was the, the person who grabbed the snail first. He, I think he raced us down that bank. They had invited him because they'd found the dead one, you know, yeah. without him. And so they were nice enough to invite him down there. Yeah, I think he, he might have. Um, I think he was skeptical. He's like, is that, is that easy? I mean, he, couldn't, he couldn't believe it, but we were very excited, yeah. Yeah, and it was a pretty eroded shell, so you couldn't be sure no. until you found those live ones. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for putting them on those. You know? Yeah, I know. We, we were glad to have them. <laughs> 
Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest for this hour is Calvin Rezac, conservation biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you missed any of today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast on any podcasting app, or better still, download the MPB Public Media app for your phone. That way you can listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. If you want to join our conversation, this morning, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Calvin, do we know why the big black rock snail was thought to be extinct? You know, I've, I think it's just a combination of you got to be in the right place at the right time, right? Uh, we've been fortunate the last couple of years with the low water levels that, you know, we've been strategically going out there at, at lower water levels to, to locate these things. It makes it easier on us when water levels are low. It might not be great for aquatic organisms, but it's great for biologists. <laughs> um, and so it's just got a very naturally small range. It's in a, the middle of a 70-mile stretch of the Big Black River where it's, there isn't any boat ramps. Um, and so we to access that section of the river, we had to pack a lot of gas in our boat, uh, float down the river, and we actually had to camp overnight just to, you know, to stumble across it. So not many people are doing that. And and it's another factor is just there's not a, a great interest in aquatic snails at this time in Mississippi. And there's also just not um, great knowledge of what we even have in the state. The taxonomy of aquatic snails is... is um, really still being developed, and we just don't even know what we have in this state. You know, I guess it might be worth mentioning, we were talking about Les Hubrick is the guy that originally found it. So mm-hmm. it's Hubrick dye. Yes, it's called uh, Lethasia Hubrick dye. And he was just a, a obsessive, compulsive collector, and he was, uh, interestingly enough, a mail carrier, I think in Meridian, I believe. I know he lived I think over he, no, that You're correct direction. on that. Yes, yeah. that's what I've heard, too. And so, what, 64 that he found, he, maybe? It, it was um, collected in 1963 and then described. So he would send off his specimens to different academics mm-hmm. who could have the knowledge of what these things were. And then they would publish their findings saying, hey, we've got a new species. And they actually were you know, honoring Leslie mm-hmm. by actually naming the species after him. And so when um, there hadn't been a curator of mussels and snails for, I guess, forever until Pa got here in the early 70s. And so he met Hubert and started going out with him. And Hubert mentioned this snail that he had found one place and never again. So he knew it was something rare. And that's when they started looking and could never find it again. Right. Is it somewhat unusual that the snails have such a, a, a small range? It it um, it is it is fairly unusual. Um, we don't know with the big black rock snail if maybe it had a wider range historically. We just have a lack of information. Um, in in the big black river, it's really confined now to like I said, a five kilometer stretch where there's actual <coughs> gravel deposits. Um, in that river system, it's just a unique geology where these snails could could thrive. Outside of that five kilometer stretch, it's all sand and silt, and those snails just aren't going to find the food that they need to survive in those habitats. So now that they've been rediscovered, is part of your work as a conservationist to then find methods to maybe increase and make it a more healthy population? 
Yeah, I think we really want to study and understand these organisms a lot better than we do. Um, you know, we we did this fall, like I said, we went back and tried to assess, okay, you know, where can we find these things? Where can't we find these things? So I think we have a pretty good understanding of where they are, where they aren't. But now we really want to understand a little bit more about their biology, um, some more about their ecology and reproductive habits. Um, so maybe doing some, some lab studies where you can actually, you know, bring some snails in, put them in a tank, and you can watch them uh, and observe them laying eggs, you know, what temperatures they might be laying eggs at, what kind of, what kind of clutch size are we talking about. Um, so I think there's a lot of those kinds of factors that are going to go into uh, the next stages for the big black rock snail. Um, and then maybe a listing decision somewhere down the line. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with Calvin Resack uh, from the Mississippi Department, uh, I mean, sorry, the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're talking about aquatic wildlife in the state. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Also, Dr. Major, always on the line throughout the show if you have a pet question. So we talked about the big black rock snake. Why don't we uh, zoom out a little bit? What about Mississippi's aquatic biodiversity? How does that stack up? against maybe other parts of the country? Yeah, so um, in, here in the southeast United States, we're really um, regarded as a biodiversity hotspot. And Mississippi has an incredible biodiversity of aquatic taxa. It really does. It's probably top five. Alabama usually beats us out, unfortunately. They're, they're probably number one. Um, we've got a good football team and uh, you know a lot of biodiversity. Um, but, yeah, in Mississippi, I think it's something to be proud of that we – we rank so high in so many incredible species. Um, a lot of these species are endemic, just like the big black rocks now. So they're found only in the state and found nowhere else. Sometimes, like the big black rocks now, they're found in just very tiny stretches of river or creeks. Um, things like the pearl darter or these rivulet crayfish, they're found in these really tiny creeks. Or the Camp Shelby burrowing crayfish, which is only found on the property of the Camp Shelby uh, military confinement area. And uh, in Mississippi, we've got, you know, almost 300 fish species, 80 mussels, 60 crayfish species, um, maybe 30 snails. And, and just to kind of put that in context, you know, from where I'm from, the land of the ice and snow, uh, Minnesota, we've only got 120 fish and maybe uh, 50 mussels and less than 10 crayfish. Um, so the climate has a fact has a, uh, something to do with it and the lack of uh of glaciation during the pliocene that really has contributed to the high number of of species we have found in the in mississippi so all that all those many years ago the way as the earth was being formed i guess that's one of the reasons why we've got such a good biodiversity yeah exactly um and yeah and just i think the climate has a it's probably a lot easier to adapt and to develop new life strategies in, in this warmer climate than in colder areas. So we talked about how diverse uh, it is. Does that make your job a little bit harder or is it they can make it more exciting or both? Oh, absolutely <laughs> both. Absolutely both. It's sometimes it's uh, yeah, it's frustrating. You know, these fish, there's 280 of them and um there's a, a group of fish, you know, called the minnows and shiners, and they look very similar. And oftentimes you're, you have to, when we bring them into the lab, that's the only way to get a proper identification is to get them under, under a microscope and you're, you're counting scales. And there's, you know, sometimes 60 tiny little bitty scales on a little fish that's two inches long, or you're counting the number of uh, rays on, on their fins. It's, it can be a very tedious process. 
So what parts of Mississippi hold unique biodiversity? We've talked about the, the Big Black River, which, as you said, is west of uh, between Jackson and Vicksburg, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, the Big Black and a lot of the uh, western uh, western tributaries of the Mississippi River, uh, the Big Black River, uh, Bayou Pier, have some really cool uh, taxa. I believe the bayou darters, the it's a federally endangered uh, darter species, only found in the Bayou Pierre system. That um, we've got like, the round hickory nut, which is a really cool uh, mussel, kind of looks like a like a like a marble marble shooter. Um, it's found in the Big Black, the piebald mad tom. Those are some examples. Um, we also have incredible diversity up in the northeast part of the state in terms of aquatic biodiversity. Um, up in Tishomingo County and Bear Creek, which is a tributary of the Tennessee River system that has just a lot of really unique um, darters and shiners. Um, and then down down south in the, the coastal regions, Pearl, Pascagoula, has a r- lot of really interesting uh, burrowing crayfish species and endemic, endemic uh, fish as well. Do you have a favorite aquatic species that's found here? Yeah, that's, that, that's always a tough question to ask. Um, there's, there's obviously so many, <laughs> but you know maybe right off the bat the blue nose shiner. I don't know if that's familiar to to any of you listeners out there. Yeah, um, that's an incredible, incredible fish. Um, it's it's blue on it on the tip of its nose like a reindeer, like Rudolph, and um, it, it has these bright yellow fins. It's kind of dark and it, it lives in more kind of pond environments in these black water sw- systems in the Pearl and the Pascula and the Jordan uh, river systems. It's an incredible fish. Um, and uh, I believe from time to time, if you go to the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, you can actually see them in the aquariums. You know, Miss Fanny Cook said that that was one of her favorite fish. Really? Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, all, all of us fish people, we think alike. We're pretty much the same. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just a reminder, uh, if you do visit the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, make sure you take enough time to go through uh, the area with the aquariums because they're just really excellently done. I love the way that it, each one is a different ecosystem of, that we can find here in Mississippi. M- museum is a lot of fun, but if you go, definitely make sure you take time to wander through the, aquari- the aquaria, I guess is the plural, uh, yeah, yeah. or aquariums. You know, I hear people say both now, so I think I say both. Right. <laughs> We are visiting on Creature Comforts with Calvin Riesack, a conservation biologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join the conversation, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Calvin, what are some of the problems facing uh, some of the aquatic species that call Mississippi home? And is there anything that kind of the average Joe can do to help out? Yeah, I mean, I hope... uh just uh, informing yourself and, and increasing awareness. Hopefully, you're you're out there listening, and um, there's lots of textbooks and and uh, resources out there for you to learn more about what amazing uh, taxa we have in state. Like Wes Shoop's book, um, this Saturday you can go ahead and listen to him. Um, so in- increase awareness of what we have in the state. Uh, let's start there. Um, I think many people think of the ocean or think of you know the Amazon rainforest is where we've got some really amazing species, but we've got some amazing species right here in our backyards. Um, I think one simple management um, practice that people could implement on their properties will be something like a riparian buffer, um, which is just you know a thin uh, stretch of you know vegetation weeds you know or 
or um, trees um, on either side of the stream bank. Um, you know, 10 foot would probably be a good place to start, up to 30 feet. Um, whether you're, you're a farmer or you're a, a person who lives in town, those um, riparian buffers are really important in um, preventing erosion. Those vegetation is allowed to grow, their roots are allowed to grow, and um, holding those, uh, those stream banks. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I've, we've got a stream behind our house, and I'm curious to see what will happen because it has been completely dry mm. for a good part of the summer, and it's going to take a lot of, I don't know, just effort to, to yeah, yeah, just yeah. to recharge it. But we've talked about what, how many things must be buried down in that crusted over dirt in the, the bottom yeah. of the stream. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it comes back. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of crayfish species will will seek uh, shelter by burrowing into the ground under under fallen rog, logs or or rocks. They'll kind of make little uh, burrows, and, mm-hmm. and if they're a, more of a primary burrowing crayfish, they'll they'll uh, kind of dig up on land. But they're they're seeking the water table wherever they can find it. We have a caller on the line, so why don't we say <clears throat> good morning to James, who is calling us from Brookhaven. Uh, James, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, where, where is the Mississippi Museum of, you said, Natural Science? Where is that located? Uh, it's uh, right off of uh, 55, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, on Riverside Drive. It's If you know where the, um, the, the Mississippi Children's Museum is, it's located right next door. Or you can look up uh, Lafleur's Bluff State Park. It's actually attached uh, to the museum. Um, and yeah. Then yeah, nearby the Ag, Mississippi Ag Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's close to all the hospitals, really. Yeah, yeah. So it's in St. Yeah. Dominic's is right across the interstate from it. So in in Jackson, maybe we should yeah. start. With, yeah. Yes, in Jackson. Yeah, please yeah. check it out. Okay, what, what hours are they open? Oh, they are open from I believe it's eight to five, maybe nine to five uh, on the weekdays. And then I believe, and, and Saturday, Sunday, it's 1 to 5. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, yes, sir. Have a good one. All right, James, thanks for the call. Another plug I'd like to give when talking about the museum is when you uh, have your, in, your <clears throat> you can go through the museum, but then also go out the back and walk on some of the trails uh, there in LaFleur's Bluff State Park, and that's a lot of fun, too, um, and good exercise. So always be able to get your steps in there while enjoying some nature as well. <clears throat> so is... Pollution of our rivers and streams and that sort of thing, other, another thing that's threatening our aquatic wildlife, and what are other sort of human-imposed problems? Yeah, I think uh, one of the, the largest problems we have in the state is sedimentation. So that's why those riparian buffers would really benefit a lot of our stream systems is, uh, you know, we have sedimentation through erosion. And, and we're in the field a lot, and we, we talk to, to landowners, and, and um, it's amazing how many people will come up to me and say, you know, the river just wasn't, isn't like it used to be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. There's a lot more erosion. They can, people are noticing um, uh, how much sediment is being brought into the system. And it's really, it's a, it's a problem because we have, um, we don't have a lot of these gravel deposits, a lot of these um, hard pan areas, and those are getting overfilled and, um, um, and, and lost. And a lot of these species uh, are adapted uniquely to these, uh, these gravel bed streams. And when you uh, have those gravel, it's filled in with sand, and, 
and uh, silt, those species just can't, they can't find food or, or they can't reproduce anymore. Our producer, Liz Gill, reminds me that uh, the museum will be closed on Thanksgiving and the day after, I believe. So if you're planning a visit, uh, keep that in mind. But you could always check their website as well uh, to get more information if you want to come to Jackson to visit. <clears throat> so let's uh, swing back, talk a little bit about decapods again. Um, remind us of, of some of the various decapods that are found in Mississippi. Yeah, so uh, off the bat, um, so I'll talk about crayfish because I'm very, I'm very interested in learning more about crayfish. Um, uh, they're the two most common ones that you, we, we eat at crawfish bowls are the red swamp crayfish and the white river crayfish. Um, they get quite large, but we have, um, down to really, some really tiny crayfish, like these rivulet crayfish that maybe get an inch or two, uh, too long. Um, they're, they're very tiny. Um, we've got crayfish that uh, are primary burrowers. So they're found, um, in the soil. And they'll dig down to the water table. They'll be found there uh, basically year-round coming out during uh, wet, rainy nights in the, in the, in the winter and spring. Um, and then we've got a, an abundance of, uh, of stream-dwelling crayfish as well that are only found in the rivers and streams of, uh, of, of perennial flowing systems. And I think they're called mud bugs, or are they one yeah. of the... So, yeah, that makes yeah. sense if they're... Yeah, so we've yeah mud bugs is is the ta- is the term for a lot of these burrowing crayfish. Um, we've actually recently in the last couple of years, uh, there were two new mud bug species um, described in southeastern Mississippi, in Harrison, I believe uh, Jackson and George County, um, called the lonesome grave digger and the banded mud bug, and they're these beautiful blue and kind of orange uh, crayfish. And uh, I'll actually be leading a survey um, this winter and spring looking for those guys. Um, we don't have a lot of records of them. We don't know much about their distribution, where they're found. So I'll be trying to find new localities um, for the, those crayfish species in Mississippi. And I think you said mussels are decapods. Is that right? Mussels are not decapods. Okay. Because um, they don't have ten legs. That's yes, why. yeah, <laughs> yes. They're, they're gastropods. Uh, well, gastropods is a snail. Is it mo- mollusca? Is I believe is class for 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 mollusks. But technically, gastropods and mussels, um, gastropods meaning snails, are both considered mollusks. So we've uh, got about a minute and a half left. Um, if someone is interested in decapods, in snails, in the bl- big black rock snail. Any source maybe online that uh, someone could go learn more about? Um, there is uh, not a lot of material for snails. I'm hoping in the coming years that I can develop something and put that out for the public to, to learn a little bit more about. Um, you know, we used to have a crawfish poster. I've still yes. got one of them. I oh don't know gosh. if they're making those anymore. I don't anymore. think they are. I'd love to find one. I ha- There's we'll one hanging to- up, but... I'll we'll have to try to get a reprint. We maybe. should reprint yeah. those. Um, that's a great, great place to start uh we've got muscle posters at the museum if you're ever interested come swing by we'll get you one for free we've also got um an online available resource for uh those muscle enthusiasts um on our website you can download a link called uh, uh mississippi uh Mus- muscle muscles of mississippi and you can learn up on all your native muscle taxa it's a shame that more people don't care more about snails because, you know, they are the little things. But as you were saying, they kind of play a real important role in the ecosystem. Right. I mean, uh, everything matters 
Everything matters. Um, you never know what if you lose something. What's that? What's the chain reaction of that? Right. These snails are are really important in cleaning up the algae that's found in these systems. Um, they've been around for forever. Uh, they're adapted to these environments, and there's a lot of other species that that rely on those snails being there um, to maybe if there's a if the snails aren't there, algae gets out of control. And there's our invertebrates there for fish to feed on anymore. That will wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. To hear today's show or previous show, you can search for Creature Comforts on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. Our show was engineered today by Liz Gill, and our call screener was Charles Arnold. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Calvin Rezac, I'm Kevin Farrell. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.